Well, good morning. So I have been sternly warned that I have 90 minutes. So um, I'm excited to spend the next afternoon with you. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, from seriously the bottom of my heart, thank you for giving me this privilege and this opportunity to worship our King and our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, with you. Thank you for giving me the privilege to come and just open up this word, which I believe is inspired by God, which I believe is true in everything that it says, and that I believe is sufficient for all of life, and it is truly a humble privilege to do this. And the first person that I always speak to is myself. And so thank you for this opportunity. And I just want to take a moment. Um, I want you to know he didn't pay me to do this, but my respect for Darren and Darla in the eight point two, five years I've known him, (laughs) has just continued to grow and increase as I've seen this family not just give lip service to loving Jesus, but loving Jesus in the difficult times and loving Jesus uh, through times when it seems as if a lot of things are spinning out of control. And he has helped shape my faith. And I walked out of here last week excited for Mount Air that, that God has given this town such a godly family and, and godly leadership here at this church. And so I'm grateful for his friendship in this family, and I'm excited for you as he serves here with you. And I'm also really humbled because I, I realize, too, I feel like I'm getting older. I've been coming to Mount Air for 16 years, uh, believe it or not. So I feel, I don't know if this is right, so I don't know if you'll accept me or not, but I feel kind of like an adopted son of Mount Air. So I hope that you'll have me. Uh, but I've grown to love this town. I grew up in a small Midwestern town on the other side of the Mississippi River in Illinois called Alito. And so the Midwest is very near and dear to my heart. And I have loved every minute that, that I've spent here in Mount Air. And uh, I pray for this town. My wife and I pray for this town and with our children constantly and pray that the gospel would permeate every home, every organization, every street every building, and every block. That's our prayer for this place. And so as we open up our word this morning, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. And the reason why we're doing this is because I know you've been walking through the Ten Commandments, but I asked Darren when he asked me to do this, if I could take a moment and look at this chapter together to really ask the question, okay, if, if God is the one who has given us the Ten Commandments, who then is this God? that has given us these Ten Commandments, and why should he be the one that is listened to? And I believe Revelation 4 and 5 give us a beautiful picture of who this God is that commands all life, that holds all things together, and that should not just be relegated to a compartment of our life or to a a time segment of our life, but who should be, as Colossians says, be our life. And so, Revelation is meant to bring hope and encouragement to followers of Jesus Christ, in other words, the church. It is meant to give a proper perspective as to where history is pointed, as to who is directing history, who holds all life, death, judgment, and mercy in his hands. You see, the church is on a pilgrim journey through this world, and while we are on that journey, We will walk and do walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Followers of Christ endure false teaching, 
the continuing, the, the continuing allure of sin, external pressure, persecution, and so much more. If we were to look at the world and the church, if we were to take off the glasses of faith and just see it as it is, it, it could be possible to say that Jesus presides over one failure after another. Just think about this, for example. According to the Center for Studies on New Religions, Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world. Their research shows that 90,000 Christians were murdered last year for their faith around the world. That's one person every six minutes. 105,000 Christians were killed around the world in 2015. And this evidence has been corroborated by other researchers like a man named Rupert Short, who oversees an organization out of England called Civitas UK. Plus, you take into account what we see here in America. Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, is on decline in the United States of America. The city of Buffalo is rated the 10th most post-Christian city in America. Christianity is not in the center of the city. It's not even a part of the culture. We encounter more and more people that do not care anything about Christ, what he has to say, the Bible, and it plays no influence on their life. And that is beginning to sweep the nation. Christianity is becoming more marginalized and trivialized. As a matter of fact, my 13-year-old son, Evan, was sitting in study hall this spring talking with a group of friends, and they started to ask questions about why there are different denominations. And it was kind of interesting. We had just had that conversation around our dinner table about three nights before that. So Evan started to just converse with them. And he's like, Dad, we were having a nice, civilized conversation. And his teacher yelled across the room to Evan, stop oppressing the classroom with your Christianity. Interesting choice of words, if you ask me. Plus, if you take into account the fact that Christians are increasingly made to feel as if we are the problem, that any mention of our faith is seen as oppressive, around the world we see Christians being murdered and displaced, and that doesn't even include the problems we create for ourselves. When we split churches over the colors of carpeting and music styles and non-essential doctrinal issues, And what we see in Revelation, though, is despite all of this, Revelation was written to pastor and encourage the church to maintain a right perspective, to remain steadfast in the certain hope that is found in Christ Jesus. It gives us a faith perspective, a real perspective about what is actually going on in the world. Revelation teaches us that God is working out his purposes no matter what events are transpiring. The theologian G.K. Beale describes Revelation as, and I love this, the ultimate battle cry of victory. This victory was inaugurated in Christ's death for sin and in his resurrection from the dead. And this victory will be consummated at his return when he will wipe the world completely clean of all evil and all sin, and he will make all things new. 
And those who belong to Christ will one day live in his presence forever. And our faith will one day be sight as we live in a new world of everlasting joy. So as we approach chapters 4 and 5, God is turning the church's attention to himself. The one in whom they've placed their faith and trust. He takes us right to his throne room. Much like God overwhelms suffering Job with his immensity, his power, greatness, and goodness, he gives us the ultimate perspective shift off of this world and our present circumstances to the one who holds all things together by the word of his power. And what we will see is that our God is great and our God is is good. So let me read to you. Please give me a little latitude. I'm just going to read Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and just allow these words to sit in our hearts in their grandeur. This is the word of God. It says, After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their heads." From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature is like, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for yourself from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. John receives a vision, one showing that Christ is exalted, the Godhead is secure, and how the faith of the church is not misplaced. We receive a greater perspective and understanding of God intended to bring his people hope and encourage, encouragement producing patience and endurance in our travels through life. The vision shows that the call to the churches, if you were to go back and read in chapters 2 and 3, to overcome is rooted in the fact that Christ himself has already overcome. And he is firmly, hear me church, Christ is firmly established in power. It does not reveal a future reality. But this vision also presents a a reality which also exists. And much of what follows that we see in Revelation 4 and 5 is tethered to more to broader Old Testament teaching found in the books of Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah. And we'll see that this contains very strong temple language. And the first thing John sees in his vision in verses 1 through 8 is a throne in heaven. And the first thing we learn in the first eight verses is that our God is great and our God is good because of who he is. He is sovereign, he is holy, and he is unchanging. The most important aspect of heaven is God's presence, seated in power. God is what makes heaven, heaven. Regardless of all the other benefits that we get when we go to heaven, the, most, the pinnacle of that joy, the thing that as his people we should desire more than anything, is not to see my loved one first and foremost. It's to see and behold Yahweh, the maker of our souls. 
The appearance of the precious stones show God's radiant glory as the eternal, beautiful, and unmatched covenant-keeping God. Despite the judgment that is about to be revealed through the rest of the book of Revelation, the rainbow around the throne displays how God will still show mercy to His people. The 24 elders that sit around the throne, these represent the totality of God's people who have intimate access to the one on the throne. Their presence shows us the church is not just an earthly organization, but ultimately has a spiritual existence. And we have access, ladies and gentlemen, to great power. As John beholds the throne, there are flashes of lightning, rumblings of thunder. This is showing God to be a righteous and strong judge. If you were to go back and read Exodus chapter 19, when God tells Moses to consecrate the people because I'm coming down to them before I reveal the law, God's presence as a righteous judge is always come with peals of thunder and lightning. We see that the Spirit of God is present, represented by the seven flaming torches. John sees a sea of glass like crystal, and the sea represents the reality of evil and the obstacle to his people's freedom. But the chaotic waters of the sea are perfectly calmed by the power of God so that evil is defeated and God's people can be free. And the chaotic waters are calmed so perfectly, it is now a sea of crystal. We can rest as God's people because no matter what events may transpire, our God is forever fixed on his throne, working all things for his glory and the good of his people. Finally, we see the four living creatures around the throne. I have no idea what those are, so we're just going to move on. Um, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. And we see that these four living creatures have wings filled with eyes on the front and the back, and we see that one is like a lion, one is like a man, one is like an ox, and one is like uh, an eagle. What these are meant to represent is the whole of creation, what is seen and what is unseen, from the earth to the heavenly realms. And what we see represented through these eyes is that God's uh, complete presence, strength, and knowledge go throughout all of creation. And what we see is that these four living creatures, meaning all creation, never cease to herald the worth and excellencies of God. All of creation brings glory to God, and they sing of His holiness. And in their song of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We see that our God is good and our God is great because He is eternally holy. He is unsurpassed in every aspect of His character. He is unsurpassed in His being, His life, His power, His goodness in all things. The triplicate declaration of holy, holy, holy highlights the eternality and the limitless aspect of His perfect nature. Holiness is His very essence. 
It's the marking, and it marks every other aspect of his character. He is holy. He is holy in his love. He is holy in his mercy. He is holy in his judgment. He is holy in his wrath. He is holy in his creation, as creator. Every aspect is holy. The great American theologian said holiness, uh, Jonathan Edwards says holiness is what makes him beautiful and what ultimately should bring joy to our hearts. Yahweh is the only place true holiness can be found. No one else has it. This glorious, unmatched God has been and will always exist as this holy, holy, holy God. There has never been a moment where He has not existed in His transcendent magnificence, and there never will be one. For this, He is to be worshipped honored and feared. He is the Lord God Almighty, unable to be compared with anyone or anything. Before we see God do anything, we should find joy and comfort in who He is. In His presence, Psalm 1611 says, is the fullness of joy He is an impeccable, glorious God who satisfies our deepest longings simply by being Him. We will see throughout the passage that there is also this crescendo of worship that occurs. And in verse 9, we see this beginning. As all creation ceaselessly worships God, we now see the 24 elders join in. And what do we see them do? They cast their crowns down before him who sits on the throne. And they adore him for his holy excellence. And they ascribe to him the praise that is due. And in the song where now creation and the spiritual representatives of the church sing together, we see that our God is worthy to receive praise because our God is good and great because he is the creator of all things. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by, you, by your will they existed and were created. All creation came to be from the will of God. And its purposes are accomplished by Him. He has established its boundaries and its order. Creation displays His brilliance, His power, and His majesty. This is not a single, or there is not a single aspect of creation that was not first in the mind of God. Everything owes its existence to Him. As Creator, then, He alone has priority and authority over it. Just as a masterful work of art brings praise to the genius behind it, so the created order brings praise to the genius of God. He created the largest of stars and mountains. He created the power of music to intimate silence. From a delicate rose to to the hue of a breathtaking sunset, it is all sprung from the very will and mind and heart of God. And all of creation, all of human history is being moved forward to bring glory to the name of our God. The Lord does not sit passively by, but is fully engaged in the governance of what he has made. 
He is not moving, he is moving history forward according to his will, no matter what the circumstances seem to indicate. For that, he is to be celebrated, worshipped, and feared. This truth should bring us joy. This truth should cause us to have our feet settled on a firm foundation. Just like the comfort a child finds in their parents' bed during a thunderstorm. As we continue, we see the vision continues and the crescendo of worship grows as John beholds now as we move into chapter 5, a scroll and a lamb, which leads to a new song the elders and the living creatures will sing to be joined by throngs of angels. And what we will see in verses 9 through 12 is that our God is great and good because through Christ, He has redeemed a people for Himself. The scroll represents God's plan of salvation and judgment. We see a scroll throughout the New Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 29, for example. In Daniel chapter 12, we also see a scroll in the prophet Zechariah. And these scrolls represent God's plan for all human history of salvation and judgment. And a mighty angel steps forward to see if there is anyone able to accomplish this plan. There is a, there is a call to creation. Who will bring justice Who will bring redemption? Who will stand above the mess of this world and order this chaos? And all creation is searched, and there are none to be found worthy. None who can bring hope. None who has the strength. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, on our own, there is no hope. So John weeps loudly. Our hopelessness should bring weeping. Creation cannot save itself. We cannot save ourselves. We are not strong enough to bring the justice for the evil of this world. And we are too weak to bring about the redemption we so desperately long for. The implication of the angel's proclamation is what G.K. Beale says, is that no created being except God possesses the worthiness and authority to be sovereign over history and execute his cosmic plan. But John is told to weep no more and to behold the Lamb, Jesus Christ. The Lamb has conquered our enemies of Satan, evil, sin, and death by his death on a cross and resurrection from the grave. The Lamb is all-powerful. This is what the seven horns mean. It's a symbol of complete, perfect power. The Lamb is is God the Son, equal in essence to the one on the throne, in intimate fellowship and possession of the Spirit of God. And what this uh, section is screaming to us is that Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our redemption. Jesus is the one by whom justice will be wrought and salvation will be accomplished. When all have been silenced by the angel's petition, 
when all our frailty has left us weeping, Jesus steps forward on our behalf for the glory of his Father and will bring history to an end. And in strength and holiness and power, he takes the scroll from the Father because he is the only one worthy to do so. And for this, Jesus has the name above every name. And the Lamb of God is to be the object of our worship, just as the one who is seated on the throne. Because the judgment of sin, God's enemies, and the redemption of a people for himself is only accomplished through Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God, through his death and resurrection. John did not need to weep anymore. We do not need to weep and search anymore. We can rejoice. Our sovereign God has done what we could not do. And he will consummate his work at his second coming. Oh, oh, please see the sufficiency and magnitude of the Lamb of God. Rest in his strength. Find joy that he has fought for you. Relish in the security of the future in peace. And find joy that he, uh, uh, that, that he will deliver you. This passage of scripture should bring his people to jubilant worship. Your mourning can be turned to laughter. Your gloom to joy. This truth should provide for you a deep sense of rest amidst the deepest possible pain, sadness, persecution, and depression. Jesus is true. His work is enough. His salvation is all-encompassing and He will right every wrong and He will bring life from death. This moment causes the four living creatures and the elders to fall down before the Lamb and to sing a new song that celebrates this great authority and this great redemption. And Christ is hailed as worthy. He is worthy to open the scroll. He has secured his people. And though we walk in peril now, though we may be persecuted now, because of Christ, as his people, he will come to get us and we will come back to reign with him. And now we see, as we continue in our passage, the scope of worshipers opens up dramatically now. Where we see that myriads and myriads of angels join in the song of worship of the Lamb. And we see that Christ is worthy of praise, as the Father and the Son are worthy of praise. And this leads to a picture of history's ultimate culmination where everything and everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth, all of creation will praise Yahweh. Because our God is great and good. Because he's preeminent over all things. All worship should be Trinitarian in nature. We worship the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All three persons are present in this chapter. Our lives are to be poured out so that we display. Don't miss this. Our lives are to be poured out so that we display that He alone is our treasure. 
He alone is who we celebrate. And He alone is who we find our ultimate joy in. That is the stage on which our faith is lived. That is the stage on which your faith is lived in Ringgold County. In a culture and in a world that says find security in money, find security in a good crop this year, find security in how well my kids do in sports, find security in how good I can look to those around me, or how many toys I have, or how big my house is. No, we reject all of that, and we say to the world, no matter what I have, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Because we believe that our God is more splendid and imposing than any reality and anything in this world. He is deserving of all honor and the infinite weight of His worth is unsurpassed and He is and dwells in excellence for all time. This is why the worship of God should be our highest value as His people. Because He is great and He is so very good. Praise in our obedience. Praise in how we treat others. Praise in how we forgive our enemies. Praise in how we face death. Praise in how we deal with illness. Praise in our witness of Him. Praise in our singing in all things. This entire passage puts on display the greatness and goodness of our God. Our worship and our lives are to point to the heaviness of His profound worth. In other words, God gives us the ultimate perspective shift. The fact that God brings the church here before revealing the rest of the book of Revelation is meant to show that our hope should first and foremost be in Yahweh for Yahweh's sake. This is why Jesus cares so much about the type of witness we are as his people. He desires us to give an accurate one. This is why he doesn't want us to be deceived by materialism or to fashion idols. Because what can honestly compare with him? This is why he does not want us to be comforted or to be uh, conformed into the image of this world and by false doctrine which seeks to diminish him and exalt man. And this is why Christ can address us in our suffering and call us to remain hopeful and to persevere. Can we be overwhelmed that we get to be called his? that we have unfettered access to Him, that He is mindful of us, that He holds not just the future, He holds your future. That we can live with the right perspective, knowing that while we walk through the valley of the shadow of death now, it is just a shadow. And by His grace, we will one day see the one in whom there is no darkness. We are to live our lives not simply committed to a theology or a group of people, a book, or ourselves, but we are to live our lives of faith committed to this glorious and personal God who exists in Father, Son, and Spirit. So I have three final questions. Does He bring you joy?
does God Himself bring you joy? Does He Himself bring you comfort to persevere through life? And finally, do you recognize that one day we will all stand before Him? Every single one of us will stand before this God. And we will either stand there as our own saviors with nothing to defend ourselves with. Or we will stand there and Christ will stand. Say, he's mine. She's mine. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus. And God, we are grateful for this glimpse, which that is what it is. It is just a glimpse. And we know that you are great and you are good because of who you are. You are sovereign, holy, and unchanging. God, I pray that we would find joy in you. As a, as a husband and wife, find joy in each other. May that just be a hint of the ultimate joy we are to find in you. God, I pray that we would persevere through life, whatever it may bring, because we know that you are fixed on your throne, accomplishing your purpose in the world. And oh God, I pray we would never, never think we can approach you on our own apart from Christ. But may we hear the sweet song of grace calling us to place our faith in Christ and to continually place our faith in Christ every day of our lives, trusting in his work, thanking you for the redemption that is found in him so that we can look forward to the day where we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.